Rod, let me take you back to when you were a young journalist and you joined the BBC when you were in your 20s, I think. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. What um, impression did you have of the BBC in those days? And did you feel proud uh, joining that organisation? What were your expectations of the BBC? Uh, I felt very proud joining the BBC um, and excited to do so, especially on a programme such as a day programme, which where I'd been working, which was in the Labour Party, uh, was regarded with awe. Uh, and I arrived there and it was very friendly. Um, I was one of three people at that point out of 46 who went to a state school. Uh, and there had been f there were five people there when I when I joined who were at Eton, and I just thought it would be interesting, wouldn't it, if I, if I turned up to this job and there were five people who'd gone to my comp in Middlesbrough, so that it would be a coincidence. <laughs> um, but they were very nice people, um, haphazard, uh, dishevelled, uh, very old school, and a very agreeable place to work for a time. Of course, you were coming from the left, so they yeah. knew you had come from the Labour Party. Did you? Did it feel as if you were amongst friends in that sense? Did it feel politically very uh, agreeable to you? No, they were several, several yards to the left of where I was. Most of them. Uh, I mean, in a kind of not in not when it came to financial issues, but it, but in in almost every social issue, uh, they were exactly as they are today. Um, very agreeably being pensant and liberal on pretty much everything. There were a couple of exceptions. There was a rather gruff and uh, a pleasing man called Francis Halewood, who uh, uh, was to the right of a soup spoon. But, uh, but other than that, it was, there was a unanimity of opinion. Did it surprise you at all going into the BBC? Was it what you expected in it terms did, of... I'll tell you why it surprised me. Um, and it was an interesting time. This was the late 80s. Uh, and I think that the, 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 the cultures change in countries over time. Um, and I think that we were in the process then of the culture changing completely, um, both within the BBC, um, within the judiciary, uh, within the Church of England, within all of our institutions. That's when the change was really taking place. Because if you go back to the 70s, the BBC would have been considered a conservative institution. Um, and certainly all the popular performers at the time, all the people everybody liked, you know, from uh, Jimmy Tarbuck and the two Ronnies and Morecambe and Wise and Lulu, uh, were all conservatives. And the tilt of the agenda tended to be conservative. It was, was criticised for such. I remember being outraged by the BBC and its attitude to punk rock. I was a punk rocker at the age of 15, 16. Um, and it completely changed, completely changed uh, over the course of beginning in the early 80s. Um, it became, I think Margaret Thatcher uh, kind of helped the change along. They couldn't abide her. No. They couldn't, they didn't get her. They didn't get any more than they get today why people are patriotic, um, why they like normal, ordinary family life and faith and all that kind of stuff. They didn't get Thatcher's appeal to the mass majority of the population. They just didn't get it. 
I well remember that. And there was a real animus against against Thatcher, yeah. wasn't there? And, yeah. I mean, I think that showed in the journalism. I don't know if you'd agree. Without question. I mean, when it came to the argument as to whose side you were on, Margaret Thatcher or the IRA, there was no debate within the BBC. We, we think we have the right to put Sinn Féin on air whenever we like, and you're censoring us. Her arguments simply didn't hold water. They were querulous as well. And I guess this is also where it began, because it did begin in those early 80s, um, the Falkland War, uh, where the BBC started getting very sceptical uh, about the Falkland War. And the BBC should be a bit sceptical. Like, don't, don't doubt that. But by the time we got into the 90s, um, the BBC was moving further and further away from the values aspirations and tastes uh, of the people who pay for its existence do you put any um, do you put any uh, credibility behind the idea of the the so-called long march through the institutions yeah. do, uh, do you believe that is what has happened yes it's exactly what has happened uh, good old Gramsci he was right uh, it wasn't actually Gramsci it was someone quoting Gramsci I think but I forget who it was Rudy Deutsch it was Rudy Deutsch wasn't it that's right yes yeah 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 uh, yes it's it, it's remarkable and it's happened it's happened not quite how it was envisaged in that what has happened is that a very small coterie of people has over the course of 30 years continually invited into its environs people who think exactly the same as itself uh, and that, that there are some opinions which are simply contraband and you would not be allowed to express them and therefore you don't get the job so it's been done it's been done in a kind of authoritarian way a lot of these jobs of course are not the sort of jobs which are open for interviews <laughs> they are you are appointed if you look at all of our uh, quangos and major institutions uh, you will find the same names cropping up over and over again to the point where you can play, a, a, and I, I would advise you if you're bored at Christmas, to, to play this game, which is six degrees of Shami Chakrabarti. That whatever position in whatever Quango or charity you find, you can get to Shami Chakrabarti in about two or three moves, you know? And Shami herself was on about four boards, and National Film th Board or something, you know? What does she know about films? <laughs> why? 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 Why is Lord Hall boss of the National Opera and boss of the National Gallery? And the, how does this happen? I'd like to do that. I mean, you. Um, so I met you actually on the Today programme back in the 80s, the first time. We went to a gay wedding together. We did, yes. We went to a gay wedding together. And I wondered, I mean, to me at that time, you seemed to be um, pretty much identical lefty to me, you seem, because I was, I was always someone who thought of myself as a, as a, as a conservative with yeah. a small c. Yeah. And um, so I saw you then as somebody who was just one of them. But over time in the BBC... Did you not see me <laughs> laughing my head off at the gay wedding? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember the thing. I, I remember. I, I have a an absolutely distinct memory of the floral arch and the. Yes. Uh, I yes. mean, it was it was so camp. You know, it was it was Baden Powell on stilts. The mm. whole thing. It was brilliant. Yeah. However, uh, that's by the by. But the but the but um, so you seem to me to fit in at that point. But you sure. were. I mean, horrible expression. But you were on a journey, weren't you? 
yourself a sort of political journey. Yeah. I mean, how well, did actually, that... Tell me it, about it's it. It's difficult. In truth, even when I was a trot, you know, back when I was 15, 16, um, I've always been left-wing on green issues and financial issues. But I've always had grave doubts on social issues, even back when I was young. But because I was part of the Labour Party, you know, and then part of the BBC, these didn't seem to be things which you could advance opinions about. Uh, I can remember advancing opinions about uh, the, the legitimacy of abortion. And the horror, <laughs> that absolute horror yeah. um, that was occasioned. But it may be, it may be that the BBC itself hastened me on that journey because it just seems so grotesquely unfair, so grotesquely biased. And it's not, as people sometimes say, a left-wing bias. It's, it, it just isn't. I didn't. You couldn't argue, for example, that the BBC gave Jeremy Corbyn an easy time. Um, and indeed, on financial issues, um, I suppose it's largely because they're affluent middle class people. They don't seem to be screaming for tax rises all the time, you know. Uh, just on those social issues, but I say just because, au contraire, Karl Marx, these, this is not false consciousness. These things matter to people. Faith matters to people. Patriotism matters to people. They had no time whatsoever for that, and it, it, it made me angry. And the, 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 the first signs of anger, I think, what would have been the first? I think Clause 28. There was no debate about Clause 28. I think Clause 28 was right. You know? Mm. Um, now even the people who signed up to Clause 28, are, such as Michael Portillo, saying how ghastly of me, I, forgive me. I think it was probably right. Um, because? I, because I don't think we need our children taught about the myriad sexual adventures which they will undoubtedly experience after the age of 16. Leave them alone. So it's not, it's not, a, it's not a moral, moralistic position, but you're saying that... It's a partly moralistic position, because I also think at the same time that the best way to raise a family, uh, to, to, to bring children into the world, is with the biologically... Uh, uh, genetically determined uh, parents, uh, a man and a woman. This isn't this isn't the church speaking. This is what science tells us. That every single study that's ever been done tells us that this is the best way. And it seems to me wrong, therefore, to start inculcating into kids at a very early age that no, you can do something different to that. Go on, you know you want to. Uh, which, of course, we've had an even greater fecundity over the last. 15 to 20 years with uh, the advent of those excellent transgender people. And within the BBC, it has always seemed to me that there is an automatic uh, approval of and uh, putting the weight behind any campaign which is transgressive, transgressive on these yeah, on these on these yeah. social issues. And, and it, 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 this is what infuriated me, and it, and, it, and it still does. 
there will be an article, there will be a piece on the, on the news about uh, anti-abortion protests in America. And it will come solely from one perspective. It will not even debate the issue as to whether they're right or not. You won't even hear the issue. It's simply these people are victimizing women and they've got to be stopped. Could this happen here? We go to Jennifer Harridan from the organization, you know, women are cross about everything. And Jennifer comes on and she says, this could happen here. Uh, and, and it's just relentless. And they never see the other side. You just don't get the other side at all. And yet all this is within the context of the BBC's much trumpeted ethos of impartiality. I mean, how can an organisation which says... Um, because it doesn't believe it's political, Robin. It doesn't believe it's political. It simply thinks it's civilised. And that civility uh, extends to, uh, obviously, the Europe issue, where it simply thinks that we're little England as xenophobes, rather than can make a a decent case for why we might be better off outside the European Union. Um, and it and it's also a kind of vacant, banal um, identification with the underdog in every single case. Uh, and so that's what you get in foreign foreign coverage. Uh, without question, you know, uh, the BBC was opposed to Robert Mugabe. It was not remotely fair to Robert Mugabe. Good thing, you might argue. But by the same context, it's not remotely fair to Israel. <laughs> not by any stretch of the imagination. And yet, BBC journalists live and die by the idea of impartiality. How is it they don't see? I mean... Yeah, well, this is what Richard Tate... Uh, do you remember the Tate report? I do. Um, and he didn't address the issue of bias enough, but he did say that people have got to know, they've got to try to recognise their bias. But, but they don't see it as a bias. They see it as decency. It is this liberal world view. It's incredibly arrogant. That, that it is decent and everybody else, anyone who disagrees with it is indecent, beyond the pale. They just, they, they, they do not see it as political. And it's unanimous, you know, I went to a, a really enjoyable party for an old colleague at the BBC, uh, and there were a hundred people there. I was the only one who had voted for Brexit. The only one. Uh, and it, it's the same on every issue. Um, and they don't see it as political at all. Um, the the Brexit issue, of course, was is a particularly interesting one because um, Brexit, as we both know, I mean, any working journalist in Britain over the past thirty years knows that actually that is the fault line which has run down yeah. right through the centre of British politics. So it was an issue where an organisation which is the biggest journalistic organisation in the country and the most important cultural organisation in the country, um, should have been striving to do its level best to make sure that on that issue, both sides of the argument were properly represented, but they weren't. How does that happen? Well, two things. I think leading up to 2016, um, in the short period leading up to 2016, they did their job. I don't think they were bad. I think there was sufficient pressure coming mm. on them to let them know that they had to be seen to be neutral. However, 
in the years from 1992 to 2014, um, the opposite is the case. There, there was continued systematic bias against uh, people who would call themselves Euro-realists. And at the time, the opinion polls, opinion polls were pretty clear. Uh, most people, until about um, uh, uh, 2010, wanted to stay in the EU, but they didn't want the EU to get any bigger. Um, and there was a good, you know, 30% who wanted to leave. The BBC never reflected those views. It never reflected the views of the people who didn't want the EU to get bigger either. Uh, and it continually discriminated against people. And there were studies, you know, uh, um, Lord Pearson of Rannach uh, did one such study and brought it to me and told me about it, the amount of airtime given to Eurosceptic voices. And I agreed with him. And I took it to Anne Sloman and she said, you've got to understand, Rob, that these people are mad. That was the view. And everyone thought it. <laughs> it's, it was a very funny time, I must tell you this. On a different issue, um, there was an American election coming up. What would it be? 2000? 2000, I think. And Mark Danazer, uh, who was then head of news, I think, uh, invited us all into his office, all the editors of the programmes, uh, to give us a good stern lecture about how we should avoid bias to either side in this forthcoming US election. And beside him on the behind him on the wall, as we were sitting looking at him, were posters for the Democratic Party <laughs> and, and campaigns which he had worked for the Democratic Party in. <laughs> this, is, this is beyond surreal, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and on Europe, there, there was another report, I forget what the name of the report was, came out in 2000, you've written about yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, which said, yeah, they were biased. They keep being told they're biased, and they keep saying, we're not, no, no. not really. Of course, that's just pathetic. The, uh, the bias against the Republicans reached a new peak under Trump, didn't it? I mean, what did you think of the way that the BBC reported Trump? Just the whole thing made me actually vomit. It wasn't just Trump. Had I been in America in 2008, was it eight? I think it was eight. I would probably have voted for Barack Obama. You know? Um, but the way they greeted his victory, the ejaculate flying around the studios, you know, the, I, I, people dancing with joy. I, I, it's just absurd. Yeah. Um, I mean, they weren't alone. You know, Obama got the Nobel Prize within, within about six weeks. We're going to give him the Nobel Prize because he's black. I, I, there's no other reason. He hadn't done anything. No. Um, and then you compare it to Trump, where they were openly hostile all the way through, all the way through his presidency. And by God, their, their delight when Joe Biden won. Uh, you could see it. Yes. Well, were you struck also by the way that certain stories in the culmination of that campaign were set on, like the, the story about the Hunter, Hunter Biden. Biden story? Yeah, the Hunter well, the Biden. Hunter Biden story was, in fairness, the Hunter Biden story was sat on by the entire liberal establishment, mm. and far less worrying than the BBC sitting on it, because I don't know how much traction it would have got over here, some. Uh, but, you know, Google, Facebook, Twitter, yeah all sitting on it mm. and banning anyone from comment on, on it. You know. 
That's it. That raises an interesting point. To what extent do you see the BBC as, it were, part of a, um, a big media liberal cartel? I mean, is, do you think that the BBC um, shows any independence of mind or thought when it comes to this sort of issue like BLM issue or like the Trump issue? Has the BBC acquitted itself any better than any of the rest of them? No. No, the BBC is exactly... Exactly the same as the rest of them, you know, liberal arts grads, by and large, um, who share a single worldview, um, which they don't think is political, um, but which is Ocaron within CNN, you know, uh, the New York, the, the, the worst newspaper in the world, the New York Times, an appalling, appalling newspaper. Um, and also the, the big tech social media companies, they are all of the same opinion. And it's getting dangerous because they are censoring stuff. Um, and this is bad. You know, they shouldn't be doing that. Uh, some of the censoring which has been done by the big tech companies is truly chilling. And I think we saw with the defeat of Trump, who I would never have voted for, uh, with the defeat of Donald Trump, that this is the first time an election has actually been gerrymandered and won by um, a liberal elite in charge of uh, communications organisations. It was a. Uh, it was interesting, wasn't it? The alacrity with which the BBC, um, after the election um, was held, dismissed any idea that there had been voting irregularities. Yeah. I think there probably weren't voting irregularities, or not many. No. But no, they had no interest whatsoever in doing that story. Was none at all. Uh, and BLM? It's pretty shocking, we, and we've got to get to grips with it, because this isn't on the BBC, it's more on the other institutions supported by the BBC, because this could happen here, you know? Um, on BLM, the, B, uh, the BBC was entirely uncritical of BLM, mm. and I think the BBC's stance on BLM helped to persuade organisations led by fabulously stupid people, such as the Football Association, um, that they should too should be totally uncritical of BLM. And so they all went along with it. And so we have every single time a football game is played and players take a knee, the crowd boos. Every single time. They do not get it. You know, these people do not get how repellent we find BLM. Tell me, um, how widespread do you think disaffection is with the BBC now? I mean, you know, we're talking as people who have both worked for the organisation and been long-standing critics of it publicly. So, you know, we are like-minded to a certain extent about that. But do you think that the, do you think that this sense of distrust of the BBC has filtered down into um, the minds of, you know, the average person. Do you think it is doing? It is doing. It's a long process. Um, but you're beginning to see it more and more. And the, the obvious way you're beginning to see it is the growth of independent commercial stations which do not take the, the view of the BBC. So, you know, uh, uh, GBTV, for example, uh, is going to be popular. Um, uh, there's also talk radio, 
which is is the fastest growing radio station in Europe, uh, and shooting up like that. Uh, I don't think you'd get that if there was a, a general satisfaction with no. with the way the BBC presented itself. And some people are refusing to pay their license fee. And some people are refusing to pay their license fee. Yeah. How, how, how serious a threat to the BBC do you think all that is? It's difficult. It changes by the month. I think if you went back 14 months to February 2020, I think there was a genuine um, assault on the BBC, partly from within the public, not wanting to pay its licence fee. You just had the debacle of uh, last night of the proms. Mm. And you had an incoming government, which was... Uh, explicitly hostile to the BBC with Dominic Cummings and people like that. Uh, and the resignation of Tony Hall uh, and the resignation of Sarah Sands, the editor of the Today programme, you could see a kind of end in sight. Covid comes along and I think the BBC for the first four months of Covid didn't do a bad job. Yeah. Um, I think people suddenly remembered, ah, sometimes it can bring the country together. And I think it did do that a little bit. BLM comes along, however, yeah. and shatters that myth that perhaps it's got the interests of the people at heart. So I think we're probably now, after the uh, the panorama uh, in Broglio and um, Martin Bashir, who I never thought was much cop, if I'm honest, um, but there we are. Um, I think we're pretty much back at where we were in February 2020. I mean, you mentioned the the, the COVID uh, coverage, and like you, I thought that um, at the start of that, in fact, the BBC rediscovered what public service broadcasting is all yeah, about. Yeah, that's right. That's, and that's right. not a, not that's not a phrase you hear so often these no, days. But no. but there is. Um, I don't know if you'd agree with me, but do you think there is a? Do you think that the ideal of public service broadcasting, the ideal of having an impartial news gathering? journalistic organisation is a worthwhile one and a good one? Yes, I'm a social democrat. Of course I do. Um, I think it's a great thing to have. But but its problem is that it's hamstrung by this notion that it has to be neutral. And under the cloak of that neutrality, it is not neutral. Um, and, and so what you need to do is to encourage BBC staff to tell us what their political opinions are. And then we can see how well balanced it is. Uh, and what way do they vote? Um, because what you need is a thousand flowers blooming. What you need is what I tried to do on the Today programme by uh, hiring a reactionary old tosser like you, Robin, <laughs> if I may say so. And indeed, Patrick Mercer. Yeah. And indeed, Michael Gove at one point. Um, <laughs> Yes. You've, you've, there, there has to be a multiplicity of opinion. Yes. And uh, that was such a refreshing thing for me, actually, when I joined your team on today, um, because uh, it was the first time, I think, that, I, the, that I'd worked on a programme at the BBC where there was a, an openness yeah. to, to, to a journalistic inquiry, which wasn't running on the liberal tram lines. No, I mean, that's right. That's that, right. That, that was the point of it, really. Absolutely vital. Absolutely vital. And, and if you're a journalist, you know, um, you have to be interested in all that. You have to try to see the other side. 
and try to see the very left-wing side of issues as well, you know. Indeed. I've never been able to do that, actually. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, the, uh, the um, I mean, you handled in your time as an editor a lot of BBC, very good BBC reporters. Um, this question of impartiality, I wonder if it comes down to this. I mean, how can you expect people who are uh, national journalists at a national level, people who have uh, you know know the trade inside out and have done their time? Most of them have strong opinions, don't they, about yeah, they things? They have they, they have strong yeah. personal opinions. Yes, and they know their stuff. They know their stuff. Is it realistic to expect? Um, people to be impartial. No, no, it's a it's a delusion. It's an utter delusion, and it's always been a delusion. The, the, the Tony Hall quote, I think, was that we expect that when people come into the BBC, they will hang their opinions up on a coat rack. I don't think there's a coat rack big enough for Emily Maitlis. You know, I, I <laughs> where's she going to store all her stuff? Um, she'd have to hire somewhere. No, of course, it's a delusion. It's a delusion, and a, but it's a comfortable delusion because it enables them to say, no, no, we, we leave our opinions at the door. But you don't. You don't in story selection, in the way it's reported, in the tone of delivery, not remotely. And in the diversity of opinion amongst and the staff. And in the diversity of Well, that's the crucial thing. There needs to be diversity of opinion among the staff. That means, to a certain degree... Also, a diversity of class background amongst the staff, which there most certainly is not. Uh, but also, um, you know, just just people with different views. I know one lad who works for one of the BBC's top journalistic programmes, who is in perpetual fear because he's right of centre. You know, I'm sure you, like me, have had this experience though. I've written stuff, you know, often very critical of the BBC. And then I'll get an email from someone you know, who's senior at the BBC, still an on-air personality, uh, knows their stuff, saying, right on, you know, you yeah, got yeah, that yeah. right. Yes. There's a lot of people, aren't there, in the BBC itself, at quite senior positions, yeah. who actually uh, would not reject what you're saying as nonsense, but would actually privately agree with you. I think they would. There, there will always be resistance, though, to the stating of political views. You know, I wouldn't have a problem if Emily Maitlis, for example, who's the obvious example of, of someone who's who's clearly politically on, on the liberal left, um, uh, despite the public school education of her children, obviously. Um, I wouldn't mind if she promulgated those views regularly. I, I wouldn't care, because it would mean that Newsnight would then have to get in someone to present the programme who put a different perspective mm. in order to provide that balance, mm. you know? Um, so look at the future now. We've got, a, we've got, a, you know, we're, we're just in the, uh, we're just in the aftermath of the Martin Bashir scandal and the dust is still settling to a certain extent on that. Um, do you think there is going to be change at the BBC or, or and, and if so, how do you think it can be enforced? I think we are... I'm more optimistic than most people on this. Uh, I think there's a good new Director-General in charge who I think gets it. I think he gets it. 
and all that prevaricating over um, uh, last night of the proms, sorted like that, mm. you know, all that lying that Tony Hall did, mm. which was lying, you know, it was lying. Yeah. Um, I'm blaming the poor conductress. So he gets it. I think in tandem with that, there are two other things. First is the growth of independent channels, which will put a different point of view, which makes it clearer to the public that the BBC is one view. And thirdly, we've got a government which has had enough. Um, now, it's not turned its guns on the BBC just yet, but you're seeing with Liz Truss and the defenestration, thank the Lord of Stonewall, uh, and in the judicial decision about um, the Tavistock Clinic, you're seeing a bit of a change. You're seeing a change in tone. Um, and so I think those things together may impress upon the BBC the need um, uh, to face reality, and which is to ensure that it represents the values of all of its audience rather than just those who live in Kensal Green. It's a matter of self-prevalence. It's a matter of self-preservation to a certain extent, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely it is, yeah. Because otherwise you won't have a licence fee. Yeah. Where would you stand on the... So if I was to ask you then, you know, BBC, keep it and reform it or scrap it altogether, what do you think? Uh, I'd prefer to see it reformed. Whether it can be reformed is another issue. I think the next two years are crucial. If Tim Davey can effect real change, then I think it might be worth having a BBC, which which is a public service broadcaster. Um, but it's a tall order, and I don't fancy his job one bit. Um, yes, the, the, the idea of uh, reform at the BBC, um, if that is to have any... If that is to be made a reality, it's going to meet a change of personnel, isn't it? Yeah, well, you see, I think they should have made Andrew Neil, Paul Dacre, or Trevor Phillips... Uh, chairman, you know, and I, th I think what they've got to do is look at the board. The board of the BBC is one of the first places you should go to if you ever want to play Six Degrees of Shami Chakrabarti. They are all, I, I mean, there are people on there, I have no idea what their interest in broadcasting is, but they all have the same view. Get rid. You need a board which, which will react with fury when they see uh, biased coverage, not one which merely sort of is emollient. One thing that stands in the way of reform, I think, is is that politicians, by and large, are frightened of the BBC. Less so than they were. You think? Yeah, far less so than they were. Um, and I think the BBC understands that as well. And I think it understands its vulnerability now more than it did. Uh, but increasingly this government looks as if it is prepared to take on stuff which will find a voice with kind of what you might call populism. One of the things that disarms the critics of the BBC to a certain extent is that I think most of us, probably 90% of the population, will have had, will have at least one warm memory of the BBC, yes? So the point is that we've all enjoyed programmes yeah. that the BBC have produced. And yeah. we, we can all look at things and say, um, 
This is a programme which probably no one else would have produced or produced as well as the BBC has done. So the thing is that there is a core of value there, isn't there, there for is the a, country? There is a, there's a real value there. I can remember listening to the... I think it was the, the last... Uh, it was the last presidential election in the United States and they sent Jim Nocte mm. to do a piece in... Uh, I think in the Rust Belt. Uh, and it was superb journalism. You know, it, it, and it's what Jim does best of all. Uh, on-the-hoof journalism. And I thought, I don't think anyone else would either have the money, because, of course, money is a big issue, uh, or maybe the inclination to do journalism with that level of of intelligence and reportage. Um, and, yeah, I, you see, I think the BBC is, for those reasons, valuable. But I find myself in a dwindling minority amongst friends, you know, even people who two or three years ago would have said to me, well, we need to keep the BBC and now say, no, scrap it, get rid of it, get rid of the licence fee. A final question. Yeah. I mean, you have been a very virulent at times public critic of the BBC. Um, has the BBC ever engaged with you um, in these terms about reform and what needs to be done? I only ask because I'm in the sort of similar position, although less uh, prominent than you, but... but They've never actually engaged with me, and I see myself as a reasonable critic of the BBC, not someone who wishes to destroy the organisation, but wishes it to reform. But I think there's a reluctance in the BBC to actually engage with critics. Robin, Robin, they think we're mad. They do. They think we're mad. They think we're wrong and we're mad. And they are in that bubble where everyone thinks the same as them, and then they will go onto their Twitter feeds where they are followed by people who think the same as them. And they think this is the country. And it's not the country. It's Kensal Green. You know, it, it really is. They, they think we're mad and wrong and that they have the public with them. And they don't. Rod Little, thank you.